Hi everyone, Ian here. Thanks for tuning in to AvTalk, the Flight Radar 24 Aviation Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We hope you enjoy the show and we welcome your feedback. For our regular listeners, I'd like to take a moment to ask you to leave a rating or a review on whichever podcast service you use, and please know that we appreciate that very much, as it helps new folks find the podcast. And you can always get in touch with us directly at podcast at fr24.com. And now, on to the show. On this episode, we check on Iceland's erupting volcano, dig through the Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 final report, and Gabe sits down with Hamapola's CEO to learn about the small airline operating a fleet of Fokker 50s around Sweden. Hello and welcome to episode 108 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. And hi, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. I'm doing well. How are you, sir? Um, I'm great. I love this small talk. <laughs> this is perhaps the smallest bit of small talk that we have, have ever done. I don't know what else to say. I mean, are you feeling good? about life, about anything in particular? I mean, how is your health? How are the, how's the cat? I mean, I, I've got a, 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 an assortment of things that we can fill time with if you'd like. Everything is just fine. There it is. Okay. And, and that is episode 108 of Uh Quick one. No. Yeah, we we've got some news this week and and thankfully the most eruptive news this week has caused zero impact on aviation. I and see what you did there. I know. And of course I refer to the Icelandic volcano that erupted not far from Keflavik's airport. Okay, now I want you to name the old volcano, the volcano that went off a few years ago and completely disrupted transatlantic air travel for, what, a week or two? And then pronounce the name of the new volcano that just went off. So you want me to do the old one first? Yes. I know you can do it. I've heard you do it. Oh, okay. I, this, is, this is putting me on the spot. So the 2010 one that affected transatlantic air travel for what roughly I think six days, it shut down pretty much everything flying across the Atlantic with a huge ash cloud and things like that. You're stalling. You're stalling. stalling. What's the name? Uh, <laughs> so the old one or the 2010 one was Aya Fjolljokul. I know I mispronounced that, but that was my shot at it. Close enough. The new one that is just a really cool lava field and slowly forming it, it's it's fun to to watch a mountain form in real time. That one's pretty cool. This one is Fagradziafull, which is also incorrectly pronounced, but again, my shot at it. Jason won't even try. I won't even know if that was correct or not. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I butchered the second one even worse than the first one, but in retrospect, that was always going to happen. So the the, the current eruption is not affecting aviation. In fact, it is promoting aviation. There have been- Imagine that. Yeah, I know. Multiple tour flights. You, you can book a helicopter tour to go fly around it. You can go on a day hike to have a picnic next to a volcano. And there has been more than one departure and arrival into Reykjavik that has, I don't want to say gone out of their way to fly over 
the eruption just to get a look at it, but they they have perhaps modified their departure and arrival paths. But very cool to look at. In the show notes, I will link to an amazing photo that was taken by a, a photographer in Iceland showing someone in a uh, Vans RV4 flying over the volcano. And that just popped in uh, jet photos today, Wednesday. So by Friday, who knows? There, there could be more. Yeah, pretty pretty great that this one is just erupting. It's doing its thing. There was no ash cloud or no dangerous ash cloud of any sort. So it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah. At, uh, Iceland Especially gets, the volcano. Iceland gets more land. There's a, a internal tourist draw and uh, aviation is not affected. You know, certainly not that it would possibly be affected to the level given the, the number of flights these days, but they're still concerned. I mean, if it, if it was going to happen, but luckily this one's not under a glacier, which is one of the, the deciding factors as far as how the ash cloud is formed. So I, I guess uh, good on the volcano. Yeah, good placement. <laughs> well, I, I I think is this the first time we've congratulated a volcano on this on this particular podcast? Maybe the last time, I'm not sure. Mm, all right. I wanted to see if I could go to see the volcano and Iceland Air wants uh, $1000 to fly there. And uh, I said, yeah, no, no. And, and Iceland happens to be one of the few countries that's actually opening up if you can bring along proof of vaccination. So it would actually be feasible to go if you are vaccinated, I guess. Yeah. But, I, I, uh, I think there's also, it, depending on where you're coming from, there's also an option of quarantining for, uh, I think it was like five days or something like that. And can you imagine how terrible it would be if like just everything stopped on day four of your hotel quarantine? Yeah. No, I, I don't want to do that. So anyway, that's the volcano that is not affecting aviation. Thankfully, the Iranian Air Accident Investigation Board released its report on the downing of PS752 last week, which was the Ukraine International Airlines 737 that was shot down shortly after departure from Tehran. And the report itself doesn't really get into much more information than we already knew based on the preliminary report about why the or or how the aircraft was shot down. And it doesn't really answer any questions as to why it was shot down, which is what makes the statements from Ukraine and Canada so very interesting. Now, the Air Accident Investigation Board reports, whether it's Iran or France or Australia or, or the United States, they're not reports designed to apportion blame or hold anyone responsible, criminally responsible or or administratively responsible for a particular incident or accident. They're designed to create a safety culture to ensure that that type of accident never happens again. So it's very interesting to me that both Canada and Ukraine made issued statements calling into question the completeness of the the Iranian report. And one of the big things that the the Canadian statement and the Canadian minister acknowledges that this is a very unusual step to take given the fact that these reports are are, are generally designed, you know, they're a safety investigation. And so 
the questions that they're asking were, we learned how it was shot down, but nothing about the report tells us why. And so Canada had three specific questions that they felt that the Iranian AIB didn't answer. What was the sequence of events, including the technical, human, and organizational factors that led to the missiles being fired and ultimately downing PSM-52? What was the basis for the decision to keep Iran's airspace open during a period of heightened military alert after Iran had launched missiles into Iraq? And third, why did civilian airlines continue to operate in Iran's airspace in the hours following Iran's launch of missiles into Iraq? Those three main questions, at least in Canada's mind, went unanswered. And Canada had a vested interest in this particular crash because a good number of the people on board were Iranian, Canadian, either citizens or residents. And so they were actually on, a lot of them were on their way transiting Ukraine onward into Canada. And the other part that's very interesting to me is there's an addendum to the report that's included in in the report package. And, and we'll put a, a link in the show notes to that. And the addendum is a table of the draft report, original text, the notes or objections made by a third party. In most cases, it's Ukraine. And then the Iranian AAIB response to those criticisms or, or questions. And it's very interesting reading to see how certain things are explained, how certain things are addressed, and often how certain things are not addressed. So it's a very unusual case because we know exactly what happened. We still don't know really why. And I think that's where kind of the anger and frustration from the Ukrainian and Canadian side comes from. Yeah, it's definitely a completely valid concern. And I don't think any report on this accident is really complete until we figure out all of those aspects. As you mentioned, one that specifically sticks out is why were commercial flights still operating in and out of Tehran when there were literally rockets flying around out of Tehran? It obviously was not safe. It proved to be fatal in this case. But what decisions were made by who and when that allowed commercial flights to keep operating? Yeah, it, I, I think that's one of the big questions. And then the biggest unanswered question is certainly what what was the breakdown in communication and how or has any of that been resolved so that this can't happen again? I mean, there's a non-zero chance that there could be a rise in intentions again in that particular area, especially between Iran and Iraq. And so what happens if this happens again? I mean, certainly there would be a much more dramatic response from the international airline community, a much faster response. I, I think that lesson's been learned. But what about a domestic flight? I mean, would they close the airspace then? Has the command and control and safety mechanisms, have those been investigated and updated? Or have they just, yeah, we we did this and, and moving on? Yeah. I'm going to guess the answers to all those questions are, are, are no. There probably haven't been any substantial changes and that's why it's not a part of the report. In my personal guess, 
Yeah, obviously we we don't have inside information, or at least I don't. Maybe Jason's hiding some sort of intelligence source in, inside of Iran that I don't know about. Sure, sure, uh, sure. <laughs> but I think that those are the highlights from the report, not the actual report itself, which is comprehensive in its investigation of what happened. Comprehensive, but completely unhelpful. I wouldn't say completely unhelpful. I, I mean, there's there's certainly some things there that, that are helpful, but there's a good chunk of what would be helpful missing from the report. Yeah, especially since, as you mentioned earlier, the goal of air accident investigations is to identify a cause and prevent it from ever happening again. And that just clearly wasn't the goal of this investigation or it wasn't the outcome of this investigation. Right. And and by that critical measure, I think it falls well short of its goal. So, Jason. Yes. In the past few episodes, we, we've branched out and talked about aviation, not just in the commercial space, but in the space space. Ah, Martian space. And Martian space, indeed. And and for that, we have an update. Ah, we do indeed. So we all know that the Mars Perseverance rover did its whole sky crane thing and landed on Mars, what was it, last month at this point or two months ago? Uh, I, I don't sure, know about two whatever. months ago. Yeah. Yeah, wasn't all that super interested in that because it has been done before. They, they've done it. It's proven. They did it with uh, Curiosity a few years ago and Perseverance did the same thing, more or less. I thought it was really cool. I'm just it saying. Was, it is very cool, but it's been proven to work. So okay. the, the seven minutes of terror is less terrifying this time around. <laughs> so we talked about this a couple episodes ago, but now we know for sure that the little helicopter that piggybacked on the belly of Perseverance, the little rover is called Ingenuity, has a scheduled takeoff date of April 8th or later. And we have some details on its actual mission, basically. So Perseverance is very slowly rolling on its way to the first ever Martian airfield. This is uh, NASA's terminology, they not mine. They are going to an airfield in a predefined flight zone which happens to be a relatively flat terrain-wise, no mountains, no real, no craters or anything. It's basically what you would want to find here on Earth for an airport or airfield. After April 8th, Ingenuity will have its first test flight. It will have 30 souls, which is a little shorter than an Earth day, I believe. 30 souls to complete its flight test campaign. On the first flight, Ingenuity will climb at a rate of 3 feet per second and hover at 10 feet above the surface for 30 seconds before uh, descending and touching back down on the Martian surface. And at that point, NASA is going to do all sorts of fun NASA-y things. They'll upload at first some black and white low resolution images and hopefully at some point in the days after that, We'll actually get some high-resolution color images from both Ingenuity and Perseverance of the first-ever powered flight on Mars. That's going to be so cool. I am really, really looking forward to that. The whole thing about space travel that always gets me is the, is the time. Like something's happening. Everything's already saying, happened. Like everything you, everything you're waiting to see if it worked, it, it's it's already either worked or not. And I that it's nerve wracking. Yeah, but that that thought always always sticks with me. It's like whatever has happened or is going to happen has already happened. There's nothing they can do about it. And and some more on the the first ever Martian 
airfield is small. It's 33 by 33 feet or 10 by 10 meters and a part of Martian real estate chosen for its flatness and lack of obstructions. The first test comes after a, a spin-up of the rotors to make sure those are working, which spin at a very precise rate of 2,537 rotations per minute. I bet you didn't know that before. Um, that's the you. RPMs uh, a Martian, I guess, you, helicopter or drone will spin at. And then after that first test, if it is a success, it flies at 10 feet and lands again. They will have 30 days, like I mentioned before, to conduct additional tests. Do they say why there's a, a 30? Does it run out of batteries or is that like what's the... Is there, do they say what the limiting factor is? Why, why 30 days? Probably. <laughs> it must have something to do, um, I'm assuming, with the, the batteries because I know it is being initially charged by Perseverance and then topped off by its own solar cells. But solar cells take a lot longer to charge up on Mars than it does here on Earth. And this is really just a test to see if they can do it. There are no scientific instruments other than a camera on board Ingenuity, it's a proof of concept. And I think at some point they'll want to move Perseverance on to other sciencey things. So they, they may just be giving it 30 days or 30 souls to uh, conduct this experiments and, and then move on to do other things. Aha. And, mm. and in, in episode fact check, a Mars soul is ever so slightly longer than an Earth day, 24 hours, 39 and a half minutes. Ooh, there you go. Ah, oh, that would explain why it's 30 souls in 31 days. Yes. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah. So it would obviously we will report back hopefully on its success come mid-April. Yes. And I, I will definitely be clicking F5, F5, F5 on NASA's Flickr page after the flight to get that sweet, sweet imagery that it uplinks the black and white imagery to, to start off with that. That'll At some point, cool. hopefully we'll get some, some color images. Yeah. I'll take what I can get. Why don't you also tell me about some history that was made last week over the Atlantic Ocean? Ah, well, over the Atlantic Ocean, you may want to provide some background here. You could probably do it better than I can, but there are these things called the North Atlantic Tracks, which are basically an airplane highway between North and North America and Europe, which are predefined every single day air corridors which flights take. They shift north and south every day given the jet stream since airlines want to utilize the jet stream to get from A to B as efficiently as possible. And though that has been in place since I believe the 1960s. It has existed every single day since then until just a couple of weeks ago. For the very first time, there were no North Atlantic tracks. And this is not because this is not a COVID thing. It's not because there were no flights or there was no jet stream. That would be very bad for the world if the jet stream went away. But it's because <laughs> space-based ADSB actually it was the first time they were able to route aircraft between Europe and North America, at least eastbound, I believe, without the tracks because aircraft were being tracked by satellites rather than sticking to their predefined corridors. So between North America and Europe, there is no radar. So there's very little tracking information of aircraft. So they stick to their 
defined routes at specific altitudes, at specific speeds. It's not exactly the most efficient thing because aircraft have to get in line and it, you can't really pass uh, once you're in those predefined lanes or you can't always take the most efficient route between A and B. So now that they're able to track aircraft by actually tracking them and knowing where they are with space-based ADSB, they were able to not have any North Atlantic tracks for the day and aircraft were able to actually go from A to B for the first time since uh, ever, I guess. Yeah. So this was the the westbound track. So this was NATS, the UK's air navigation service provider trialing this, which will likely increase you know, as time goes on and, and as the, the system becomes more fully functional. But for the first time in, in decades, there were no westbound tracks. And the operators now can file the optimal flight plan for, say, Paris, New York. So instead of filing the optimal flight plan to get to whatever entry point for the, the westbound track they're taking that day, and then taking that track, which isn't necessarily an optimal flight path, it's just the optimal structured flight path, then to the gates on the North American side, and then basically re-engaging an optimal flight path. It takes that part out. And so it makes flying much more efficient. It decreases the amount of fuel used. It increases the number of flights that can be within any certain area because now knowing where the aircraft are, they can space them closer together. It's all some really great stuff. And it is partially COVID related because the reason that they were able to do this sooner than they thought was of because of the decreased traffic related to COVID and, and the the decrease in travel. So as travel ramps back up and, and as there are more flights, hopefully this all this all sticks together. I mean, this is kind of the the biggest example of ADSB surveillance becoming a driver of better flying, both in terms of you know the cost as well as the environmental you know, issues. But this is a, a thing that, you know, is being implemented in the US as far as next gen is concerned, or what the FAA calls next gen. At, at this point it's really last gen. Uh, but that's a whole other podcast. Zing. But elsewhere, you know, free route airspace and, and finding the most efficient way to to do things. So there's a lot of a lot of learning still left to do to to take advantage of it. But this is a a big first step. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely so a big deal. Continues. Yeah, Definitely for, for sure. Kind of sticking with the theme of, I don't want to call it sustainability as far as the NAT tracks go, because certainly we're in the, the realm of unsustainability there, but things are moving in the right direction. However, this week, Airbus Rolls-Royce, the German Research Center DLR, so the German Aerospace Center, and the sustainable aviation fuel producer Nest teamed up to start what they have helpfully titled ECLIF-3. Uh, so this is Emission and Climate Impact of Alternative Fuels. So the the first two kind of rounds of testing were studies working kind of towards this one. This is the 100% sustainable aviation fuel being put into the first Airbus A350 actually, which is now their, their flying laboratory. And then flown around the 
German Aerospace Center's Falcon 20, which has a long sensor on its nose, will basically fly behind the A350 and sniff what comes out. Ah, the old airplane following the airplane to sniff the other airplane's exhaust trick. Exactly. Yes. So this particular fuel blend is hydroprocessed esters and fatty acids. So basically used stuff. And that's going to be tested against the regular old jet fuel to see what the difference is and and how uh, how that affects the engines. So that testing has recently begun with A350 MSN 001, and that's going to continue over the next few months to see what the effect of the emissions is and, and also how well does it work with the actual aircraft. Yeah, and I'm sure Boeing will also be keeping a very close eye on this So, it, since it's basically staked its entire, I, I guess, next-gen evolution of commercial aircraft in sustainable aviation fuels, while Airbus seems to be doing pretty much everything from they trialed battery technology, which they determined just it isn't there yet. Now they've shifted to the future being hydrogen powered, but they're also at the same time doing sustainable aviation fuel trials. So while Boeing at this point has pretty much put all all of its eggs in the sustainable aviation fuel basket. So they'll be keeping a very close eye on this. I was talking with someone this week who works as a consultant in the industry, and we were having a conversation about the difference in approaches between Airbus and Boeing as far as the next generation and then sustainability and all of those things. And the thing that we were kind of grasping at and trying to figure out is this isn't really two organizations saying these are the approaches and, and we're going to go out and make money doing this. It really seems like these are much more like trial balloons for saying governments are going to have to come dig it together and mandate something. And yeah, I, I would agree with that. And to say that, you know, Boeing hasn't put anything forward, well, they, they haven't had to. And with Airbus's multiple options, I think they're really searching for, you know, okay, what can we get governments behind, specifically the the governments of of France and Germany, to say, okay, this is what seems most promising. And now here's the next round of basically the next round of government funding to make these things a reality. Yeah. And and it, that seems to me to be what people are waiting for. So I, I was kind of more critical of Boeing until until we, you know, until I started thinking about it this way and saying, well, Boeing doesn't really have to do anything at this point. It would be great if they did, but I can see where there there's no win for a, a first mover here outside of this seems promising. No, especially since any change and what powers an aircraft is going to take substantial infrastructure upgrades as well. You can't just say, okay, our next wide-body aircraft replacing the 787 will be hydrogen-powered. Well, you got to have somewhere ready to put hydrogen in that aircraft, and you have to have somewhere to manufacture 
that hydrogen and hopefully in a clean way. So there has to be upgrades to every airport that aircraft actually flies to and transportation systems to get that hydrogen to the airport. So this isn't just a, an industry Airbus versus Boeing problem. It's very much a global logistics and hopefully a decision process. You wouldn't want Airbus to say our future is in hydrogen and Boeing to say our future is in electric because that'd be confusing, wouldn't it? Not only confusing, but just unworkable, really. Yeah. So there, there definitely needs to be some sort of global alignment here. And, and right now, Airbus, especially Airbus, is looking around to see what works and what doesn't, while Boeing is kind of you know, saying, well, we got this thing now that kind of works, and we can retrofit our existing aircraft to it. So we're going to look at that. Right. Right. Let's stick with Airbus and bid farewell to the A380. Oh, no, I don't want to. MSN 272 departed Toulouse on its first flight and as the the last A380 that will ever be built, assembled, produced, what have you. It flew on a first test flight and then went up to Hamburg to have its guts all finished up and, and for a fresh coat of paint. And it will eventually, at some point, probably be delivered to Emirates. I hope so. I, I don't think there's any alternative there. No, they'll take it, but we'll just see how long it takes for them to actually you know, take it home. Yeah, they're in no rush, but it is very definitely sad to have what feels like so prematurely the, the last ever first flight of an A380. Too soon. Yeah. I mean, I mean we, we've talked about this multiple times, but the A380, both ahead and behind its time. Yep. Absolutely. It's sad, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. So we'll we'll mark that occasion certainly on its on its delivery, whenever that may be in in the coming months. What do you say we take a break here? And when we come back, we sent Gabe to uh the other side of Stockholm and he chatted with Amapola Flig's CEO. And it's a very interesting conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. And as this podcast comes out and you're listening to it, uh, head over to our Instagram channel or check out Twitter because Gabe is going to be flying the airline on Friday when the podcast comes out. And he will have some special stuff in addition to the interview, uh, some really good content from aboard one of their Fokker 50s. So when we come back, we'll hear from, from Gabe and the CEO of Amapola Flick. If you'd be willing to tell me a little bit about the, the background of this airline that you, you mentioned, it's the best kept secret in, among Swedish airlines. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what it's all about, what it does. Uh, Amapola comes, it was created to, to do mail freight for the Swedish post office. We did that for almost 15 years, and then uh, mail has become less and less of, of a market because physical mail is not a big thing. And then we decided to move into passenger traffic because we had experience with that, because we owned another airline before called Skyways. Thereby, we knew what to do, and we had some passenger Fokker 50s and so on. So we about three years ago, started the process of adding some passenger service to our repertoire and doing all the necessary certifications like IOSA and, and so on and, and, and uh, pitching for an interline agreement with SAS that we now have in place. 
can you tell me a little bit about your background and, and sort of how you came into all of this? We've been in aviation since the 80s, uh, and it's a family family business. So we came into it in the, in the 80s with small regional airlines that we then merge, it, merge into Skyways. And then I first ran a little airline called Direktflug, and then uh, I became CEO of Skyways. Was CEO there until almost until we sold it. And then I was out of airlining for, for a long while. And then when this whole transition with Amapola, that it became obvious that that was necessary, I joined as CEO just to do that transition because I had some experience with that. Aviation is a famously tough business to make work, to make profit. Why run an airline? Why have a company that has an airline? We come at it from a slightly different angle in the sense that it's very asset-based. We own these Fokker 50s that we fly. And in one sense, you could say that Amapola is more uh, Fokker 50 than it is an airline. So we sell spare parts, we sell maintenance services, we own uh, one of the few remaining Fokker 50 simulators that we sell time in for to other airlines. And and uh, we sell aircraft and we buy some aircraft and and we try to make money out of the asset rather than trying than dreaming of making substantial amounts of money on the actual airline services because that's very tough in some parts it's very appreciated because it is very robust Especially in East Africa, there is a, a large contingent of, of Fokker 50s because it has high landing gears and the props are high up in the air. So if you land on rough runways and, and so it's, it's a good aircraft. And also you have the paradox that there has basically been no aircraft manufactured uh, or very few manufactured after the early 90s in 50 seats and below. So you have the old ATR-42, but those are very few and far in between. And you have a large fleet of, of aging aircraft and nothing to replace them with. And that's, of course, why there still is a market for the Fokker 50, is that it ages well. And when the Fokker 50 reaches the end of its life cycle, whenever that is, are you, are you already looking for what's the replacement plane going to be? Or, or does the airline go away with the Fokker 50? We don't have a strategy like that. I mean, as there is nothing to substitute it with, we could fly this for another 10 years and be happy with that. It's just that we will only go into another segment if we think that it's sparsely populated enough for us to have a niche worth a name because if you're in the, in the market where everybody else is it's absolutely impossible to make money at least for us i mean you have the odd ones that actually make money like ryanair or easyjet or those we cannot be them we don't know their secret formula and thereby we have to find something where where there is a segment where, where aircraft are cheap enough and where we can find ourselves a, a niche where not everybody wants to be. Right. It's rare to find an airline these days, especially where 
it's not about acquiring the latest aircraft and going heavily into debt on these things or having yeah. big lease payments, right? So how how critical is that that the fact that you own these planes, the fact that cost structure? It is well? important because they are well depreciated and thereby our capital costs are low. And if we take, especially in a country like Sweden, where there are few people, but still where you need connectivity, you don't fly very much during the day. If we take the American majors, when they use their regionals, they start at 5 a.m. in the morning and they stop at 1 a.m. the next morning. So, you, you know, you go 18, 20 hours a day. In Sweden, it's quite a lot that you just go in and out in the morning and then you go in and out in the evening. And then capital cost is an important factor. So if, it's, if it should at all be possible to do that in a cost-efficient way, you need to have an aircraft with low capital costs and high uh, appreciation by the customers. And that I think, uh, there I think the Fokker 50 fits well. Makes sense. How do you describe the niche that Amapola fits into? The niche is 50-seat uh, turboprop or 7-ton cargo. And it's not a big niche. It's just that there are very, very few other people in that niche. Because before you had Saab 2000, those are all almost gone. You had uh, Dash Q300, the only one flying that aircraft, to my knowledge, is, is Vidrio, and they have very few of those. And then you have the odd ATR-42, but not many of those in a market that's still there. And if we compare it to the ATR-72, which is the turboprop uh, that has been manufactured in larger numbers, it is still much cheaper to fly this one. And if the capital costs are lower, the running costs are lower, then there will be a small but still uh, a sector or a niche for us to, to be in. And we can only do this, at least in my view, you, you would not be able to recreate an Amapola if it hadn't already existed because we have all this knowledge and know-how about the aircraft with the people that we have. If, if Amapola would have gone away and you tried to do a Fokker 50 airline, you would not find that know-how again. So with the Fokker 50, we'll just enjoy it while it lasts. I mean, we, we bought when VLM... A Belgian Fokker 50 company went bankrupt. We we bought their assets, so and suddenly we had more planes and more spare parts, and then we could do more deals. But I mean, we tried to have all the knowledge necessary to fly the Fokker 50, and thereby we can also sell that to others and make a living out of that. Great. I don't know if you saw that Vedero has has now committed to take this electric plane as a yeah. potential. I think that's very exciting. Of course, it will start. There are few places in the world that are so well suited to electrical aircraft like Norway because they sometimes have ludicrously short sectors that you just fly across the fjord of course not all sectors are like that but they have a lot where, where the aircraft hops around so the whole range question is is uh, is not a big thing and of course their electrical aircraft would work fantastically well i'm very interested in that and i think it will come and if we take sweden as a market if you have segments that are like the ones i described where you fly in and out in the morning and in and out in the evening of course then you can fly your morning flights and then recharge for a while 
and then fly your evening flights and then recharge overnight and then that will work out well. It's just that right now, the projects that have come furthest have very limited seating cap capacity. So I think it unfortunately will be a while until the sector we are in, the, the 50 seat market will have an electric plane, unfortunately. I mean, there is this Swedish project with called Heart Aerospace with 19 seats. And that's nice. There's the US-Israeli aviation project with an aircraft called Alice that were supposed to have uh, done a test flight a year ago. I don't know what's happened there. And, and I think Vidra has teamed up with an Italian outfit. But of course, I think for the regional market, which is usually short-sectored, electrical planes will come, I, I hope, sooner than we think. Hmm, nice. And can you tell me a little bit about these pandemic flying contracts that we were, we were talking about a little bit about yeah. before? Of course, when people have been told to stay at home, passenger volumes have just deteriorated or disappeared almost. And of course, if you want in a, in a big country like Sweden, if you want any kind of connectivity, you need to buy services because it's, it's very far, even though it was commercial routes before the pandemic, it's not anyway near possible to run it on a commercial basis now. And those contracts, the Swedish government put up a number of routes where they said that on these routes, you need to have at least one round trip per day, six days a week. And most of those routes are now flown by SAS in that way, but there are, are a few where they don't. What are some of those routes that, uh, that you there are, There are two that, that have recently been renewed and that have been awarded to us, and that's Sundsvall Arlanda and Unschelsvik Arlanda. And those run for one month at a time, up to three months. And then we'll see. But of course, they don't want to pay for this because they hope it to go back to commercial. But it's based on that the pandemic eases a bit. So previously, the government didn't subsidize any routes within Sweden, but now they yes, do? Yes, they did, but not the, these particular routes. I mean, we have long-term contracts with Trafikverket, which is the, the government agency that does the tendering process for these uh, routes where we fly Vilhelmina, uh, Lycksele, Arlanda, Hemavan, Kranfors, Arlanda, and Torsby, Hagfors, Arlanda. Because those are very, very thin routes structurally, where you still need people to have connectivity to Stockholm that's decent, so it's possible to live there and work there. Okay, so those places have always had that equivalent yeah. of what, what in the U.S. is essential air service. Basically. Yeah, exactly. In, the, in Europe, they're called PSOs. So we've had Bra, Brathens out of the picture for a while. Yeah. They're saying they're, they're, they may come back sort of soon? I am absolutely convinced that they will. I mean, they went out to receivership or Chapter 11 or what you want to call it in September, October. And of course, they wouldn't have done that if they didn't have a clear plan as to that they wanted to start. I think their feeling is still that if you do it with the wrong timing, you're going to lose a lot of money. Thereby, they have uh, waited and waited and waited. And of course, this second wave was much more extended than people thought last summer, which in a way was, it's surprising that we are so 
surprised in the sense that the pandemic seems to have the same season as the flu. So, I mean, we had nothing last summer. And then when the flu season started again at the end of October, it came back. So uh, with that said, I'm optimistic that coming into late April, beginning of May, when the flu season ends, combined with the vaccinations that we're now doing, that at least the pandemic will be totally under control. There will still be people in hospitals and there will still still be people who need to stay at home or, or in need of medical assistance. But it would be enormously surprising if Corona as a pandemic was not over or at least not a major factor come beginning May, just for flu season reasons. And when we get into the flu season again in October, then of course we we will have vaccinated most everybody. So I am very optimistic that that is what we'll see. The question mark is what will that do to passenger numbers and how will that differ on different sectors? Yeah. Does Bra coming back change what you do at all? Your route map stays no. the same? So I think Bra will, my best guess is late April or otherwise beginning May. I think we talked a little bit about this last year. Uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that again, and whether it's still the same that, that you had this idea that it's it's not a priority to try and to try and market or do big ambitious growth it's, plans. It's very hard if what you have on the routes that we have long term, these are small communities, and we are the only option. So you don't have to do a lot of advertising there. If we talk about doing marketing in the Stockholm end of things, or even worse, of course, on the international scene for for international guests that want to go up to Hemavan or, you know, hiking or fishing or hunting or Vilhelmina or somewhere else. How to reach those is very difficult. I mean, what we can do and what we now manage to do and have implemented is the interline agreement. So we'll have it will be more visible in the booking systems. That's important. Otherwise, they will probably question whether you can fly to Villermina at all. That is in place. Of course, now with connectivity, where you, when, when SAS changes their schedule once a month uh, drastically, it's, it's hard. That will not be a major thing on, until international travel is allowed again and when that's going to be one thing is my view on what's going to happen with the pandemic where i am optimistic that come beginning may that will be a, not a thing of the past but a very very small issue but what will happen to the passenger numbers and when will countries open up to international traffic yeah and that's it has become very political in that sense so i don't know if the fact that the pandemic eases will immediately have an effect on how you're allowed to travel right do you ever have groups of aircraft enthusiasts coming to you to look for charters on the Fokker 50 or anything like that uh, not that i hear of i don't know if other it's, it's it's probably possible i mean we are almost the only Fokker 50 operator in europe you have our air antwerp where we have one of our aircraft that is supposed to fly Antwerp, London City, but uh, they're in hibernation right now because 
with the restrictions and quarantines and so on that the Brits have in place, it's it's very unappealing to to fly to the United Kingdom at the moment. What is internet in, interesting in international travel is, of course, what will business travel look like after the pandemic? Because the digitalization that we have now experienced and that, that we have been pushed into by the pandemic will, of course, not go away. It will, there will be more travel and there will be more uh, actual physical meetings. But I would be very, very surprised if business travel is not... <laughs> materially depreciated coming out of this pandemic because people have realized that for many i heard one stockholm business leader say that for everything that is just governance if you just want to run through your agenda of a board meeting or a project meeting that is non-controversial just everybody needs to be heard and you need to touch base that works just fine over zoom or teams or whatever media you're using on the other hand if you want to be forward-leaning if you want to be creative if you want to exchange ideas and and so on you still need the physical meeting but how much is what in these senses and that we have now an acceptance of not being there live in a meeting but the whole thing that before it was not looked at as something that was acceptable and now it will be acceptable. And of course, for many people to just fly into Stockholm, to take an example, have a meeting for two hours and then waste the whole day in the process is not super attractive. So what the markets and, and different routes will look like for on, on routes that are very business travel oriented, I think is going to be very much different from what it was. I think leisure traffic is going to come back straight away because people long to to travel and, and uh, go to the Mediterranean and catch some sun and relax and eat good food. But if we take business travel, I'm more concerned. And in a way, it's a good thing. If we don't have to travel, then that's good. But of course, for our industry, it's it's a defining factor what happens to business travel. And I I think that will be substantially depreciated. Welcome back. We now move on to the new quality issues with the 787. And the FAA last week came out and said that it is going to reserve the certificate authority for four 787s that have had particularly egregious quality issues. So the ongoing saga, I mean, we talked about in the past few episodes about some of the problems with the shimming on the 787. There was new information about the windscreen on the 787. And and so things just keep kind of, you know, adding up. But these four particular aircraft, the FAA says, no Boeing, you can't issue the airworthiness certificates for these, we will be doing that. Yeah, it's a lot like what the FAA determined for the delivery of the previously grounded 737 MAXs that were produced during the grounding. But I believe this is the first time we're seeing that applied to another aircraft at Boeing. It's just, uh, what is it, the four aircraft plus a few more in the future, perhaps? Perhaps. The, perhaps. They're, they're reserving the right to to reserve the right. 
for future aircraft deliveries. Probably a wise decision. I'm not sure if the FAA is the most, I don't know, trustworthy organization at this point to to be doing it rather than Boeing itself since they kind of operated side by side during the whole MAX debacle. But it's definitely noteworthy that the FAA is demanding that they certify these aircraft rather than Boeing itself. Yeah. So there was a very interesting thing that happened to Aviva Airbus A320 late last week. And it's still unclear to me exactly how this happened. The front fell off. But yeah, the the front fell off. The nose gear just came off. It just kind of fell off. hate when that happens. Luckily, they were taxiing for takeoff and they were not going fast and there were no injuries reported or anything like that. So, so that was that was very nice. They they were trying to make a very tight turn because the the taxiway that aircraft normally take to the runway is closed, and so they were backtracking on the runway and then trying to to make a one hundred and eighty degree turn. And I guess they turned too tight or something, and and the landing gear popped off. So hopefully they can get that repaired, but I don't know. Yeah, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> I mean, we've seen all sorts of issues with the A320 family with the nose gear specifically rotating 90 degrees and becoming a whole thing when they land, which inevitably it's, it always ends up being fine. But the front nose gear just plumb falling off the aircraft, that is, that's a new one to me. Yeah, I would love to read that report to find out yeah. how that happened. Yeah. Specifically interesting in this is that the front fell off, the nose kind of collapsed onto the runway, but they still popped the uh, the slides on this aircraft and, and conducted an emergency evacuation, which seems a little overkill, but I guess prudent? I'm not sure. Where, where do you stand on this? Well, I mean, the aircraft was leaning at such an angle, I don't really know how else you would get out. A step stool? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, that's that's fair. I, but I guess the, the slides was the the safest and most efficient way to do it. I, I yeah, yeah. They also did not all deploy correctly. I'm just actually seeing now for the first time door one R, the door on the right side towards the nose. The the slide deployed, but at like a thirty degree angle upwards towards the nose of the aircraft. So that that wasn't going to work. I oh, guess yeah, these yeah, these are probably not designed to be deployed in, in such a such a matter, I guess. Thankfully, the, the slide at 1L did deploy normally, but also some of these pictures, there's just the two the two wheels are, are completely disjointed from the nose gear itself. How does that happen? Did they not tighten the lug nuts or what? I do not know, but hopefully we find out. Hopefully. So a, a number of airlines, when the pandemic first hit, continued to look for revenue generating schemes when their flying went to near zero. And a few airlines started selling- Literally everything. The airline <laughs> food. Yeah, nearly everything, but mostly the airline food. But ANA has sold how many meals? Well, they have sold $1.8 million worth of food equating to 264,000 meals since they started the program in December 11th of 2020. So that's a lot of airplane food that never sees an airplane. 
I suppose that there's nothing really worse than as far as airplane food goes versus another frozen meal. So I, but I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they were able to sell that many. So yeah, the meals are available only in sets of 12 for 9,000 yen, which is about $83. So it's not like you can walk up to the nearest 7-Eleven, buy, buy one A&A meal for $4. You're buying $83 worth of airplane food. Some of the meals actually, the most popular was apparently the beef hamburger steak, which looks like a hamburger patty covered in gravy next to peas, carrots, and mac and cheese. I don't know. But apparently A&A can't crank these out fast enough. Huh. Yeah. I color me surprised. Yeah. They even had a whole dinner event on a grounded 777, maybe one of those with the uh, Pratt & Whitney engines that can't fly at Haneda on March 31st, or they will have it on March 31st. A, a business or first class meal is a whopping $274 or 550 if you're in first class, and it is completely sold out. People will do anything at this point to get on a plane. Not even fly on a plane, just get on a plane. Yeah. I, I mean, to be completely honest, I have had some absolutely fantastic airplane meals that I would have paid good money to have on the ground, but I don't know if an ANA economy beef hamburger steak meal would be one of those. I can answer that in the in the absolutely not. I would not no. do that. Would it be something I would do if it were safe for me to go do and offer to JFK in a heartbeat? Yes, right now. But not yeah, I don't yeah, I still don't know if I would I still don't know if I would do that. Just to sit there and eat an economy class meal. In a grounded triple seven that can't fly because its engines might explode? I mean it's Pretty nice. Well, when you put it like that, good sir, I'm there. <laughs> oh, None of that boy. was exaggerated. Uh, yeah, that's. It's hard to believe that that was all factually accurate, and yet here we are. <laughs> so you were telling me about something, and I was like, okay, that's mildly interesting. And then you threw in a little nugget that really caught my attention. So tell me about what the FAA has done with the passenger facility charge and why I didn't know I cared. Okay. Where to begin with this one? So for the last few decades, the FAA has had a rule in place regarding its PFCs, passenger facility charges, that is applied to every single ticket that you buy on a flight originating or I believe landing in a US airport. I think it's like $5.50 per ticket per leg or something like that. I'm not sure if it's per leg or per itinerary, but it's a minimum amount of money tacked onto the ticket that you pay. It had specific restrictions about what you what airports and cities can and cannot do with that money. And one of the restrictions has led to an unfortunate phenomenon in the United States where we often have these airport public transit options to airports, which are downright awful. So I'm thinking the Oakland airport's little tram guideway pulley thing that goes from the nearest BART station to the airport, or the JFK air train, or the proposed terrible backwards LaGuardia air train. They're all trains that go from an airport to another mode of transportation, we very rarely in the US outside of 
Chicago have a transit option that actually goes to the airport. And this is because for the past couple of decades, the FAA has had this rule saying that PFC funding cannot be used to finance public transit work going through the airport, basically. It had to be exclusively for the use of the airport. And that's how we ended up with these stupid people movers that go from the airport to public transportation rather than just extending public transportation to the airport like you see in every other other civilized country in the world. And finally, 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 I believe this rule was pending since 2016, but the Trump administration sat on it because they were generally very anti-public transit. But finally, the FAA passed it along, and now that rule is no more. So hopefully, we will be able to have sensible public transit options to the airports in the United States where we can extend existing transit to and through the airport and continue it on rather than having these additional people movers to get you to and from the airport. So that is big news in the way we do uh, airport transportation in the US. I had no idea that that was why we were stuck with these awful people mover things. And you're in the one of the very few cities in the country. I mean, Chicago has the the blue line that goes to O'Hare and Midway, I believe. Which line goes to Midway? The the orange line goes to Midway. Yeah. So we have we have direct transit links to both airports. The the blue line at O'Hare goes into the actual airport and the orange line takes you to the parking garage, but it's close enough. Like you don't you don't need an additional transit, you know, thing to get there. Right. But, I mean, you know, thinking about things like JFK or other airports that could in fact greatly benefit from a transit link or don't have one. I mean, that's a pretty big, you know, block to it that that's gone now. So hopefully we get to see some cool stuff. Hopefully, and hopefully we can scrap the LaGuardia Air Train program, which just in the past week actually had the FAA pass its environmental impact study, I believe, or its alternative study, many of which they, they kind of you know said this won't work, which I'm guessing and many of us are guessing is just because they want to be able to spend PFCs, 100% of the PFCs to fund this, rather than doing the extremely logical option of just expend, extending the subway to or through LaGuardia to provide that one seat ride, which is really the, the global standard. And there, there are a few other airports in the US that already have that. Atlanta has its commuter rail station there at Hartsfield and San Francisco has BART, but that's I think that's about it. Yeah, I mean there aren't many. But hopefully, yeah, that this this increases it. But yeah, I was just really fascinated. I was like, oh okay, now that's a it makes sense now. And now it all makes sense. It makes sense. It was because literally we were not allowed to spend PFC funding money on the logical choice because God forbid the PFCs go to benefiting someone who isn't actually using the airport at that moment. Yeah. Let's close the show with, with a bit of a change of pace. And someone who read the companion blog post about our conversation with with Sven Lidstrom at the Troll Airfield in Antarctica, wrote in with a story of their own. And and so I said, this is such a a great story. And I I wrote back to him and I said, can I I share this on the podcast? And their response was, I need to find time to listen to 
to what a podcast is. And I said, <laughs> well, then then you're in for a treat. It's a damn good story too. So, so reader Stephen Williams worked at the Halley Station, which is the British Antarctic Station. And, and he worked there in the early to mid 1980s. And so he relayed a story that had been passed down since the late 60s at the station. And one that I, I think says a lot about the relative comfort of how things have changed, as well as the technology used down in Antarctica. So in, in the early 1960s, all of the supplies that were used at the, at the Antarctic station were still brought in by ship, all of them. They didn't really airlift in any supplies or anything like that, other than you know some of the, the, the people and, and things like that. But everything that was needed for the station came in on the ship. And these groups have no way of of getting rid of anything they don't want. So that all sits in a, a storage container or, or something like that until they can either you know truck it out or, or get rid of it. But because of all the weight restrictions and carrying things around there being difficult, especially in the 1960s, things just added up. And so one of those things was a cocoa powder used for making like like a cocoa drink and apparently no one liked it but it was on the supply list and so every year they would deliver it more and more and more and it just kind of piled up so much that they had almost a ton of this stuff sitting in a storage locker 1967 rolls around and someone has a pretty severe accident and needs to be airlifted from Antarctica off the continent to more kind of proficient medical facilities where they can receive treatment. And so the only the only folks who are able to do this at the time are the US folks and so they send a US Navy C130. And so in communication they need to create a runway. So what they ended up doing was driving tracked vehicles back and forth back and forth back and forth to to kind of create as smooth as a possible runways they had nothing like they have at troll where they used a, a laser cutter to level the ice and then have very strict policies and procedures around how, how they make the runway this was whatever you can do to get a c-130 to land so they they lined up empty fuel drums along the side of the runway and they were like but well, how do we you know, kind of show them where to go, point the direction, get them all lined up and, and things like that. They had the idea to take all of the cocoa powder that had been stored up on the base and make a big arrow towards the front of the runway. Brilliant. A great way to, to mark the runway using dark cocoa powder on white snow and ice. And they get rid of all that cocoa powder. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. The plane arrives. One of the minor hiccups was that they had placed the barrels every 50 meters instead of 500 meters. So the pilot thought he was well out of room on the runway by the time he landed. But but it all worked out. And the person was airlifted off. They They made a recovery and everything was fine. Or so we think. A week later, another C-130 came over the base unannounced and parachuted out a large container. What was in that container, Ian? They airlifted Halley Base a pallet of cocoa powder. Ah, uh, hopefully it was better cocoa powder. 
I, I American that, that cocoa was powder. not part of the story, but it seems that they took everything in stride. And to this day, it's probably still sitting down there. That's a very, very cool, good story. Kind of amazing that the Americans would go all the way back to who knows where to stock up from wherever they had a pallet of, of cocoa powder and flew all the way back down to Antarctica to, to airdrop it down to replace the cocoa powder that was used in a rescue mission, which is- The, the 60s were a crazy time. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that's the, just being neighborly though. We, they yeah, wasted all their yeah. precious cocoa powder so that it had to be replaced. So uh, many, many thanks- to Stephen for for sharing this story. Even better than that, he's he's sharing with me a collection of images that he's put together from both his time down there and and folks who were down there before him. So he he's posting that over to me, and once I uh, once I have my hands on it, I will uh, share as much as I possibly can. So look for that on the the Flight Radar 24 blog in the coming weeks. I'm very, very excited to receive that package soon. So we, we've come to the end of the episode, and I would very much like to ask everyone to wander out to whatever platform they are listening to this on, whether that's iTunes or or Spotify or or Stitcher or TuneIn or just, I don't know, some tin cans and, and string outside. I, I don't know. But wherever you're listening, a rating and review would be most welcome. It's certainly helps us move in the right direction as far as people finding the podcast. Jason and I very much like to read your thoughts on the podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions, leave them there or or email us directly, uh, podcast at fr24.com. I read every email and then make Jason respond. I only just learned this week too that I never rated our own podcast on iTunes. How dare you, sir? Five stars. Would recommend. <laughs> so if you could do that, we, we would be very grateful. This has been episode 108 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.